0: The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Happy Independence Day, and thanks to everyone in attendance, everyone on Zoom, everybody listening to ACB Media, our lovely Zoom hostess today, Maria all the sponsors, and our four panelists who I will introduce uh, one at a time. We're going to, um, well, I have a little format. Well, hopefully it'll work. So um, I really want to welcome you all here today for our second session that is being sponsored by the Pedestrian Environment Access and Transportation Committees and I am the chair of the transportation committee, along with co-chair Claire Stanley. Becky Davidson chairs um, the um, the other one, the
2: <laughs> the pedestrian
1: environment access committee, along with um, Sue Crawford. The, yeah, the PEAC, but everyone does. I don't. I like to avoid those uh, things because people don't always know what they are. So this, the name of this panel discussion is "Yes, You Can," and this is local success stories. This afternoon, a panel of blind and low vision advocates are going to share their um, experiences successfully advocating for accessible pedestrian signals and everything else. Impact pedestrian safety. We're going to start today with Ray Campbell. So I'm going to read his bio. So Ray Campbell, who is sitting to my left up here, is second vice president of ACB, and he lives in Springfield, Illinois, where I actually lived when I was a little girl for about two and a half years. Professionally, Ray is employed as senior accessibility analyst for United Airlines Ray has been involved in transportation advocacy for 30 years. He served for over 10 years on an ADA advisory committee for PACE, which is the Suburban Bus Division of the Chicago Area Regional Transportation Authority, Ooh, including serving as chair and vice chair, I guess, of that very committee. He also represented DuPage, DuPage. 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 DuPage sounds better. (laughs) DuPage County, Illinois. um, I I went to the, you know, Voices of the World luncheon, so I'm thinking fancy accents. Okay, So he serves on the Metro Commuter Rail um, uh, Citizens Advisory Board uh, for several years at the request of the county board chairman. He is one of the individual plaintiffs. This is the good part in the accessible pedestrian signal lawsuit against the city of chicago and i would like you ray to take just a few minutes here to give us a brief synopsis a synopsis of your role on in these proceedings and how it worked out for chicago welcome ray
3: good afternoon uh everyone listening on zoom and here in the room Before I begin the synopsis, I'd like to acknowledge another one of my fellow plaintiffs is out in the audience, Ann Brash. Uh, She's also a plaintiff, and we also have one other individual plaintiff, along with the American Council of the Blind and Metropolitan Chicago Chapter. So we're not quite through the process yet. Um, So what I'll do is I'll kind of give you an update of where we're at. Um, The lawsuit was filed late 2019 against the city of Chicago because they had promised and promised and promised for many years that they were going to be installing accessible pedestrian signals. There were a number of, uh, you know, promises made, promises not kept. And um, finally, you know, working with disability rights advocates, we said, we're sick of this and we're not, we're mad as heck and we're not going to take it anymore. So we filed uh, litigation against city Chicago and, um, it went through, um, you know, we've gone back and forth with, uh, various, uh, things that have gone on discovery, interrogatories, depositions. Uh, if you've deposition or going to the dentist, I don't know what's worse. It's, uh, the, the, the lawyer that gave the deposition for the city was kind of a, kind of a jerk. And, um. I said, I told somebody, I said, the next time I see him, I'd like it to be out behind a bar somewhere because (laughs) he was just, but he was good at what he did. And um, it's um, I, so I guess where we're at now is that we are starting to talk uh, with the city. I think to explore some, we're finishing up uh, some discovery with them. I think that's just been completed recently. And we're starting to talk about potential um, you know, settlement uh, with them. Um, what the, One of the unique things about our litigation is that uh, about a year ago or so, the Department of Justice uh, took an interest in, and actually signed on in support of what we were working on uh, with uh, with the city of Chicago. And um, you know, one of the other things that's been interesting about it is, as we're moving through this process, you know, is that, now, all of a sudden, we're starting to hear about plans by the city of Chicago to install uh, signals over a number of years and, and uh, various uh, things. So uh, it's kind of interesting how that happens once you start uh, kind of rattling their chains a little bit. But um, I mean, there's just really it's been really it's been an interesting process to go through it. Um, it's just been but it's been a, but I think everybody on the, uh, plaintiff side has been great, uh, at, you know, working through and kind of working through all of the things that, um, that you have to work through and that. So we're not quite done yet, but I think we're getting close to a point, uh, where maybe in the next six months to a year, we'll be able to announce something. So, uh, um, it's, uh, it's moving along slowly, unfortunately, as these things tend to do, but, um, you know, it'll be one of the just points I'd make. It'll be interesting to see what happens because next year in Chicago is the next mayoral election. So I don't know if that this will factor in with uh, that or not, but uh, we'll
1: see. Great start. None of this would have would have happened without advocacy. So it it can be something little, something big, and this is really big. Um. I was going to ask you how long you think, and you just said maybe within the next while. So that's really great. So our, our next, um, panelist who I'm going to introduce is Karen, and she's Karen Luxton Gurjee. She is, she has a doctorate education. She's always been a teacher and a learner. She began her career as a high school English teacher and she consulted with colleges seeking to accommodate students with disabilities. In 1980, Karen secured a position as associate director for research and development at the computer center for visually impaired people at Bauch. I don't know. Baruch. <laughs> there I go again. Baruch College, CUNY, CUNY. I think that has something New York and received her doctorate from Teachers College, Columbia University, in 1983. Karen transformed the center from a training vehicle for programmers to a place where blind and low-vision individuals could acquire computer literacy as well as more advanced skills. She has always worked on accessibility of arts organizations, transit systems, and is regularly sought as a reviewer, and advisor to programs that uh, promote access for people who are blind or low vision. In 2010, Karen was a founding member of Pedestrians for Accessible and Safe Streets, PASS, and is once again chairing PASS in an effort to encourage New York City to fully realize the vision and the promise of accessible pedestrian signals intelligently installed across the city. Karen, I so apologize for butchering your bio and welcome to this panel. We are really happy to have you. I don't know how much you heard, but we started by having Ray talk about what's going on in Chicago with accessible pedestrian signal progress. And we'd love to hear about New York's situation. Welcome.
4: I don't know how much time we have for this, but I, I wanted to just make the point that from at least 2006, people in the city, in New York City, were trying to do something about the lack of um, accessible pedestrian signals. I remember some of you may know, he's a little famous in ACB terms and and, and, and uh, places, Ken Stewart Almost by himself, almost single-handedly, was one of the first people who talked to somebody he had gotten to know at the city council. Who talked to anybody he could find that would listen, and was finally able, in about 2006 or seven, to have installed the first APS um, within the city, and that was uh, that was on a corner it happens to be sixth avenue and 23rd street which is no reason that anybody here necessarily should know it unless we have some new yorkers here but it was um a half a block down the street from a large um residential and educational uh building where there were a ton of blind and low vision people who lived so that got done but there wasn't much that happened after that, sometimes we got somebody to say, "Oh well, there's another agency here. Let's put let's put an APS around an agency." And so, you know, when there, that kind of thing was done, and uh, there was the creeping little uh, assumption made by city developers and engineers and stuff. Well, of course, blind people only. Um, You know, hang out around those agencies. So, really, that's the only place where we need to put them. Well, um, a whole lot of us from many uh, places in the city thought that that wasn't true. And especially in 2010, um, we all, there was a big brouhaha, you know, when there was a, when Mayor Michael Bloomberg was written up in the New York Times and other newspapers and magazines because he had committed to installing a bunch of countdown signals through many, 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 many uh, uh, intersections in the city. I don't even remember now how many, I think. But I think he really was trying to basically plaster the city with them. And, of course, for us at that time, the countdowns were silent. and the, the the thing that did was something really interesting because so many of us in so many different places were really angry. And a few of us from ACB, one night, well, we talked to the NFB people and see if we could come to their meeting to make a little small presentation. And they said yes. And we came and we had a little conversation about all these countdowns and about what the mayor's office was doing that was anything but what we needed. And how really what was happening was that if you thought about it, the ADA was being violated by what they were doing because these uh, attachments, if you will, that were being put in were completely inaccessible to us. So we talked to NFB and we made a deal that we would work together. And having done that, the what we call the PASS coalition, PASS, which stands for pedestrians for accessible and safe streets, um, was born. And that meant that ACB, um, you know, not the whole ACB, but people from ACB who are interested and NFB, same thing there, and people from various agencies of which the city had pretty many, um, would be able to work together to see what we could do. And so from that time, the past, um, there was a steering committee formed and we started to meet and we, we sent a letter to the then mayor and to as many other people as we thought might actually take a look at this and basically told them that they were in violation of the ADA. And we told them why. And so that was our start. That was our beginning. And it was a very slow process, but eventually we got to meet with the then mayor, I can't think of this word, the head honcho of the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities, Commissioner, I think is what he was called. And so we got to meet with him and we began to talk to some city council people. Long story short, we started to get a little bit of progress and I mean a little bit. Um, we did get to meet with the transportation commissioner at that time, Polly Trottenberg, and we were we just continually, continually told our story. And what the thing that happened that was critical was that there were actually laws passed um, that up to in the first instance, which I think was 2012 to show you how long it took, they had to do about 10 APS per year. And then the next one we got, there were a few more. And finally, there was, there were, um, it was going to be 25 per year. And the last one we got was going to be 75 per year. So it was an accomplishment in the sense that these things were in the law now. So that was something. But it was not what we, um, what we really needed, and at that same time, in um, 1915, 16, 17, we started getting these, these. uh, and Ray may have already mentioned these, I don't know, so if I'm repeating, you know, I apologize, but these things called lead pedestrian intervals. Yeah, LPI is is leading
1: pedestrian intervals.
4: That's correct, LPI, Um, and basically what that is, is that the Walk signal is turned on early so that walkers would get a head start. The only problem, of course, is that since in so many places there were not accessible pedestrian signals, APS uh, installed there, walkers had no idea. We didn't know what was going on. So this was a very, very dangerous thing. And ACB. Around that time, I believe actually in 2018, um, decided the state group of, of ACB, the state um, entity, decided, no, this is not right. They're not doing it fast enough. They're not, you know, and they haven't taken us into account when they're doing this um, LPI installation. So, ACB made a decision statewide to sue to sue the New York City Department of Transportation and happily pass was able to join with them not as a plaintiff in the suit but as people who could support who could provide information and um, write letters individual letters uh, saying why this kind of thing was was very um, critical for us, um, for all of us. And, you know, essentially supporting what ACB had started. So that's where we began in about 2018, 2019. And of course, many people probably know that the situation was taken to court. And in the spring of 2022, We got the word from the judge that our, we as the plaintiffs, well, ACB and a couple of individuals as the plaintiffs had won. The judge believed what we said. The judge um, made it clear that the city was going to help to, um, not help to, the city was going to have to install APS throughout the city. That's going to end up to be about 12,000, whereas, you know, before we had probably under 200. So this was a huge win for us. It is, it is something that's proceeding now. And um, I think the last thing I want to say about this is that um, until we go to questions or whatever, the last thing I want to say is it is so critical on a lot of issues that groups wherever possible work together because it really did help. We had strengths of a lot of different people from various places, whether it was an O&M instructor from an agency or a lawyer from, you know, from another, uh, another one of the consumer groups that we were working with or people who could talk about guide dogs, whatever. I mean, it, it, we, have come to believe, I certainly have, um, that anytime you can really join forces and work together well, you can. You have the chance of accomplishing a lot. So, I'll stop for now. Karen, thank you so much. That is just
1: such an important, and I know we sometimes don't like the word inspirational, but it is an inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so... Chicago's on its way. New York City has had a huge victory, but we all don't live in big cities. We live in all kinds of environments and advocacy is important and necessary everywhere. And our next speaker, and you know, we'll have back and forth in questions, but we, we I wanted to give everybody a you know a, a first shot at, at a speaking. So our next speaker will be Gretchen Mooney who lost her vision while she was in college. She's been an ACB member and a fierce advocate for over 10 years. She holds a BA in English and a master's in public affairs from the University of Missouri. Through her work with the MCB chapter, Missouri Council of the Blind, uh, chapter she founded called Tiger Council of the Blind, as well as her work, serving on the board of the nonprofit local no, the long prof, nonprofit comma local motion and serving as the co-chair of her city's disabilities commission she pushed for Columbia Missouri where she lives to install its very first accessible pedestrian signal in 2012 she has continued to lobby for pedestrian safety And Columbia now has many more APS and detectable warnings at Corners and is also the first city in Missouri and the 22nd in the nation to adopt a Vision Zero policy. Gretchen lives in Columbia, Missouri with her guide dog, Royal. And welcome, Gretchen. If you'd like to share, you know, something inspirational, your favorite story, whatever to get this crowd moving and advocating in their own local jurisdictions.
5: I would love to. And thank you so much for inviting me to speak. It's uh, an honor to be on this panel with these amazing advocates who have come before me and paved these ways. Uh, so I'm Gretchen Mounty from Columbia, Missouri. Um, and to give you a perspective, since I'm representing a kind of a medium sized town uh, with the last census We have uh, about one hundred and twenty-five thousand people, and uh, right in the middle of the country, Um, and we are a a college town. uh, University of Missouri is there, the first land grant institution west of the Mississippi. I went blind as a senior in college at MU uh, in late two thousand six, and I'd already lived in Columbia several years, originally from Kansas City, but I. as I uh, adapted to my new way of life, I was still, I was walking everywhere, couldn't drive anymore, and learning things and uh, realizing we, we didn't have any uh, accessible pedestrian signals anywhere. And I was so uh, surprised by this. And after I got involved with the council, I did found, uh, with the help of uh, Diana Noriega, uh, Tiger Council of the Blind in Colombia. And started uh, pushing for uh, better blind access across the city. Um, One day in, I believe it was late 2011, I was crossing the street with my previous, uh, now past, guide dog keeper. And I uh, was crossing the street and a car almost hit us. And it was very terrifying uh after that happened and after uh we kind of shook it off and we're fine uh it was middle of the day so i walked down to city hall with keeper um determination uh in my gaze and um managed to uh, i'd already advocated um at many meetings and gone to many city council meetings over the past uh, few years before that but i was like something really needs to change cuz right now it's these promises of at some point it will weren't doing it for me. And I met with uh, one of the senior engineers in public works, Richard Stone, and talked to him for a long time. And I, um, after that, we worked together. Um, I wasn't on the disabilities commission for my city at that point, but I put together, I was like, what are my skills? Well, right now I'm really good at research and writing. Um, And so I put together a presentation on how, Auto accessible pedestrian signals help all kinds of people, not just blind people, and how important they are. And went and got on the schedule, the agenda for the Disabilities Commission at that time, and got them to recommend to the city that we needed to uh, first install 10 accessible pedestrian signals in the next few years, but then start making sure that all new intersections, any that had construction done on them, in any way repaired. Or anything would have them. So, with some more pushing and organizing, people to come to council meetings, we managed to make that happen. So, in uh, 2011, Springfield, which is kind of uh, about our size, and uh, they think they're better than us, uh, Springfield, Missouri. Uh, <laughs> they, um, yeah, yeah, uh, they had uh, five signals. I want to say at that time. Which, again, I know y'all from uh, Chicago and New York think that's nothing, but for smaller cities, it's nice. Uh, we had zero. Uh, now, we have uh, about 25 intersections with accessible pedestrian signals across the city um, and are getting new ones all the time. After uh, this got passed, uh, Richard and the rest of the public works team that works on this asked me, to uh, basically provide them a list of the most important intersections uh, that needed them first. So I went back to TCB, then I went to our local NFB chapter, uh, then I talked to other uh, unaffiliated blind and visually impaired folks I knew and tried to get a really uh, wide, uh, inclusive idea of what was needed because me... Going out, going to boutiques and shops and bars in the university, so different than someone um, who's got a totally different lifestyle. And we made a list, and uh, things are much more accessible now. And uh, just, uh, it's it's very exciting. And I just want to, um, I guess, my bit of advice um, and hope to talk a little more later, but is don't give up and uh, just keep pushing because be that squeaky wheel. Because I've been talking, um, since I went blind, uh, about why we don't have these things in Columbia and talking to anyone who would listen, friends, city leaders, et cetera, and it wasn't happening. And finally, I just pushed enough and talked to the right person and, and it did happen and, uh, things are a lot safer there now. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Gretchen. See, we need people like Gretchen. You you don't have to be a big rock star. You just have to be somebody who cares about your community and really dig your heels. in. we started the journey in Kansas City in just, you know, a little before 2010. And an advocate who is now retired, who I used to work with, Patrick Palmer, we started it and um, Patrick actually started and I joined in and we have close to a thousand in Kansas City. We've got that agreement, too. Um, Gretchen, where anytime they upgrade a signal or anytime they put in a new one, it's accessible downtown and midtown, certain areas. It, you would be surprised if you didn't find one. It's wonderful. I love them. So, our, our fourth panelist, um, who is going to kind of give his perspective as a professional in the field is Larry Watkinson and I'm going to I'll read his bio and then we'll let Larry talk. And then I think after that, we will kind of open it up to questions so that, you know, people, all the panelists can hop in and answer questions. And um, I think I think that's probably the best way to go. So Larry Watkinson serves as the deputy director of the Office of Equal Opportunity within the Washington State Department of Transportation. In this role, he is responsible for numerous civil rights programs, including Title II of the ADA, I shortened it, and implementation of uh, WSDOT, which I is Washington State Department of Transportation's ADA Transition Plan, um, as part of his responsibility, Larry has earned the ADA Coordinator Training Certification, ACTCP. Now, Larry, I have that, too. And when I got it, they told me I was the first blind person in the country. Did they tell you that, too?
6: When did you get your certification? You didn't- <laughs> when did? You get- he'll- when-, he'll- when did you get your certification?
1: I I don't remember, but maybe around 2013, 14, I've, it's been a while. So
6: you were the first blind person, and I was the second blind
1: well, person. Well, there you go. And, was, uh, and I've always why.
6: wondered who, who was that first blind person. It so was me. Mike Edwards told see, me it was a I, woman. But see, yeah. just,
1: I do know what I'm talking about. I do know what I'm talking Larry holds a master's degree in public administration from the Evergreen State College and has also been a small business owner. One more little chunk. Larry is an active member of his community as a as a previous ooh, the board the things are squished out. As a previous board member of Inner City Transit Authority and Washington State School for the Blind, as well as active within numerous other nonprofit organizations. Larry participated in efforts to adopt the Americans with Disabilities Act, and has been engaged throughout its implementation. Larry and his wife, Kathy, live in Olympia, Washington, with their two daughters. Take it away, Larry.
6: You bet. So I'm going to make a statement here that might surprise some of you who have been involved with advocacy. The Manual of Uniform Traffic Design is not your friend. I want to make that very clear. It is not your friend. Who is your friend? United States Access Board. That is your friend. The other person that can be your friend is the person that's on the inside of your state agency that you don't know or your local agency. We've heard it referred to as your public works director and other folks, and here's why. When we design a manual, we have a design manual. You have to scope a project. and In order to scope a project, you have to, have some standards that goes into it. And nationally across the country, we use the manual of uniform traffic design to do that. That guides everybody in what they're going to do. In most states, in fact, in every state, I pretty much, if you have federal dollars, your jurisdictions follow that guideline and the FHWA process for how they're going to do a project. They all want to default to the minimum not to a best practice. You in a state can in fact push for best practices. Now, why do I make these statements? In Redmond, Washington, I worked with a group who also was a biking group. And by the way, bike groups are not your enemy. They actually have become your partners because of roundabouts. So in some respects, you can thank roundabouts for that new important alliance within that groups. What happens is, is is when we design roundabouts, we don't always necessarily consider the best ADA practice. You hear me saying the word best. If you're going to do something in scoping and you're going to put in the best practice, you need to design into your roundabouts before it ever is given birth to have adequate, Electricity pipes, conduit, plans for rooting a raised crossing, plans for putting rapid flashing beacons or other types of traffic devices, and that is at the beginning. And I'm going to argue that should even be planned in the planning stages of a single-lane roundabout. Now, let me explain to you why. If you and and and, this, and I'll get to it's, this is the one example one of the examples i gonna give you. Because in Washington state, none of that was considered in a roundabout right outside of Microsoft. Jeff, I don't know if you know about this particular roundabout by where the light rail is going to come, Uh, but Jeff is a Microsoft employee and he's running the media here for us today. They had planned no infrastructure. They approved the money in the uh, connecting Washington about 10 years ago for this expansion of this light rail system out there. The advocates from the Redmond, Move Redmond, came together, and they were told, we can't do anything to improve this roundabout, even though it's planned to have several thousand people come through that intersection each day as they use the light rail system. So when they got told they couldn't do that, they started to move into action. When I went to our Northwest region, Seattle administrator, and said, we got a problem here. This design really doesn't meet best practices. And in the state of Washington, even though PRWAG was not adopted uh, formally by the feds, we have adopted ProAg in our state as a best practice. And we have also adopted some other types of practices based on advocacy. So working with these folks in Move Redmond, I was able to pull a meeting together, and they were all told there was no money. Sorry, no money. The legislature already approved it. We can't find any more money around. So I pulled our staff back into them and I said, Look, here's our commitment to the community. Here's the voice that they have. And they have a lawyer. Now we can just let this go and let it happen, but they have a lawyer and they have a voice and they have a need and they represent a level of constituency. And I think we ought to really be taking a look at that. So we went back, talked to folks. The roundabout is now going to have rapid flashing beacons. They're going to have raised crossings. And the city of Redmond on another one of the roundabouts was not going to do anything about it. And I suggested that we now got some federal funds coming into this and we have some state money coming into it. Oh, and by the way, it was going to be new money. And it was going to be on our right-of-way. So we caused the city of Redmond to have to build to our standards on our right-of-way, even though there was a city street that intersected with it. Because there's a little thing in the law that says you're basically supposed to have uniformity on how you use your pedestrians. You don't put an APS on one side and not on the other side because it's in someone else's jurisdiction. That's a big no-no. So... My point to you is, is these advocates came into the scene well after the funding was done. So why I said Uniform Traffic Design Manual is not necessarily our best friend? What you have to do, in my view, in this experience, is you've got to get in and you've got to decide what you want your construction design manual to look like to meet your needs in your community, because that's why we develop transition plans, the American transition plans that cities are required to put together if they meet the requirements beyond a self-evaluation. And you can, in fact, add best practices beyond the minimum. Real quickly, up in another community, another roundabout, I took one of our traffic engineers, some folks from our design office, and they, I, what I did is, I picked out the ones that were not really favorable of making big improvements to roundabouts because they love the manual, the UTCD manual. So I knew that where they were because I'm on the inside. I'm, you know, I'm the guy that's buried in the inside. So I took them, I intentionally got their supervisors to send them out with me and their managers. You see, I were reported directly to the Secretary of Transportation. I had a little bit of influence. I took them with me. And I will tell you, I met with Carl Jarvis, who's a longtime member of this organization and other members up in the Northwest uh, area. And, and it was my day with seniors. And we took these folks, we offered them blindfolds. We led them through these roundabouts that they, get, uh, that they had built already. The roundabout that they now have being de-scoped designed and was funded, has race crossings, RFBs, and it's got everything that this community wanted beyond the minimum standards of the ADA requirements, had nothing to do you know, with these folks. So they were the voices of that, and I had articulated with this group before we went up there, this is what I need you to do. By the way, um, just real quick, I'll hand it back to you. I've actually left that job two weeks ago. Um, and I went back to the Department of Licensing uh, so I could completely focus on nothing but ADA standards for programs and services, because that's my area of uh, interest in, in that respect. But it also has put me now in a position to where I know the bowels of how a transportation agency works. And I'm gonna use those that where I came from in the very back of the tail um, and move myself forward and, and be able to be more of an advocate on what I now know that goes on and how you need to advocate for getting things done. And it doesn't necessarily always start with talking to your governor, your commissioner, or your, or, or your folks. The people who are like you and I and put their pants on the same way. Those are the ones you got to talk to and if you can educate them you're going to get them on your side. And we had more wins because I never really talked to the important people. I talked to the people who got this job done and who owned the design manual. Find out who owns that design manual and make them your friend. Here you go.
1: Thank you so much Larry. We you know, look at the power sitting up here on this panel and you all of you out there in the room listening and on zoom you can all do this you know you you need to advocate you need to and I think something we just heard with, with Larry, you need to educate yourself. We need to learn what's what, you know, and that it's really true that manual and uniform traffic devices, MUTC, TCD is so our engineers, if they don't want to put in a light, they'll say, well, we did a traffic study and this intersection doesn't warrant. Now it may, that's, it's a bunch of whatever you want to call it. It doesn't mean they can't put in, they use it as an excuse to dumb down what they want to do for us. I would like to now um, open this up to questions. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to take one from Zoom and one from the room. And you may ask general questions or you can address your questions to individuals on the panel. And I think we will start with our Zoom visitors.
7: All right. Then on Zoom, uh, we have uh, Chris first.
8: Thanks uh, very much. Excellent panel. Um, I, I certainly agree with everything uh, Larry said and, and the rest of you. And I would just note that when an when a agency says that we don't have the money, um, that's a disingenuous statement. What they're really saying is you're not a priority, um, because if something's a priority, they always find the money. And the second thing is these decisions are all uh, political with a small p. So, um, you know, decisions can be ch- changed and they're changed all the time uh, if you talk to the right people. I was wondering uh, if the advocates ever used um, their state uh, public records law to get information regarding um, how many accessible pedestrian signals there are versus signalized intersections without uh, accessible pedestrian signals, and how
6: many signals have leading pedestrian intervals and that kind of thing? Anybody tried that with the public records law? When I left two weeks ago from the department, you did not need a public disclosure request to do that. It was on our website. It should uh-huh. be on everyone's website if they have a transition plan or a self evaluation. That's not yeah, if they should- if they did it if if they counted. Uh, as barriers, lack of accessible pedestrian signals, but a lot of agencies don't do that. You'll get it in Washington. In, well, in Kansas
1: City, they—I—I I know that you can get those answers. I haven't asked in a few years, but they were if the Sunshine Law, and they were—they were that was public record.
5: Yeah, I just wanted to say in uh, back in Columbia, like I mentioned, uh, Springfield, Missouri. That's really the only town we were trying to compare ourselves to at the time to get the attention of our leaders or city council and mayor, because uh, if we compared ourselves to the signals that St. Louis or Kansas city had, they'd be like, well, they're much bigger. They have much more money, et cetera. But um, yeah. So we just did research in Springfield.
4: And in New York, um, Our uh, Department of Transportation does have those records and it's pretty easily available without having to um, actually depend on the law itself.
6: I might suggest that if you're really interested in that stuff, um, a lot of contractors are, uh, a lot of states and cities they bring in contractors, they pay them a million and a half dollars or more to write their transition plans. Okay. Um, I and two other staff wrote our plan. Go look at it. It would be a good example for you to see how that should be done and provided to you.
1: Okay. In, in the interest of time, if if uh, questioners can ask one question, and if and if we can restrict ourselves to one answer, so that we'll you know cover more territory. And Ray has nothing to add, so let's uh, take a uh, question from the room. I'm Andy
8: Irvington. I live in a small community in Washington State. And our main street that comes into town is also a state highway. So every time we ask the city about a crossing, they
6: say, ask the state. Every time we ask the state, they say, ask the city. And they play ping pong with us all the time trying to get in a crossing. So do you have anything to suggest for that? Could you stick around afterwards? And I'd be happy to connect with you. And we'll, I will help you, give you the 10-point plan what to do.
1: Now, this is advocacy in motion. See, look at that. And now
7: another Zoom question. All right. From Zoom, we have Lino.
6: I love to hear advocacy in motion, whether it's several miles away in Omaha. Good afternoon from North Carolina. I just want to make a quick couple of comments. Number one, New York, you should be very proud of yourselves for what you did. Second of all, Chicago, keep doing what you're doing. And finally, I am trying to get APS signals in a city of 16,000, which is Albemarle, North Carolina, uh, outside of Charlotte. And you guys are, have given me uh, more wheels to the forward motion to try to do what we're trying to do here. <laughs> the only way we're going to be able to do it, sadly, is to go after the DOT of NC by a lawsuit. Thank you, guys.
1: Okay,
9: then I guess another question from the room. It's like two teams. Hi, so I'm Doreen Cornwell, and I'm going to ask this question because it's come up in Washington, but I bet it's going to come up in other places. I got a while ago, I got a haul a while ago from a city that's thinking about how to regulate robots. And they were like, should we just, if, can we ask for a list of blind people from, and they listed one organization. I said, well, um, I think you shouldn't assume that blind people are only going to, you're only going to care about where the robot travels and you're talking to only one organization and you need to talk to several. Um, But I think my question for the, the panel is. Can you suggest some strategies for advocates when thinking about new stuff? Before we had, before we had a question in the previous session about scooters and rented bikes, and um, I, I can go on about those. But um, right now, the question is just about robots, which is like way outside of the ProAG, but has a lot of potential also to affect the pedestrian environment.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does sound far afield to me. Is is there one of you panelists who feels that it's within the transportation realm enough to want to address it?
4: It's Karen. I just like to say um, I think it's very critical for um, an advocates to engage like this person that you that from the from the administration that you talk to and find out so, so you for sure understand. I mean, maybe you do already, but I wanted, I would want to know exactly what is the function of these guys? How are they going to be used? And I wouldn't make a move until I knew that. So I know how this potentially can, you know, affect um, the whole transportation sphere. I'd start with that.
1: Yeah. And it it may not be that uh, relevant at this moment, but I take back what I said, because looking down the road, who knows? And now I'm giving this mic to Ray. He wants to address it.
3: Thank you for the question, Doreen, because it does bring up a point that I know I've emphasized for a long time. You know, here in ACB, a lot of times we talk about advocating at the state level or advocating at the federal level. But your local get to know your local government, get to know your local government structure, how it works, your city council. Do you have a board of trustees? Whatever it is. Find out when they meet and if you can't go to the meetings, you know, sometimes uh, either on YouTube or on local cable access, those meetings are broadcast and you can watch them. And um, one of the things that you because the local government is the one I always have said to people affects us the most. They're the ones tearing up our sidewalks. They're the ones that are building intersections and not putting signals on them, <coughs> accessible signals on them that we need. And so. Uh, learn how that government works, and one of the things I would say when you, especially if you're talking about like your city council or board of trustees, make sure you understand their structure because sometimes what these these groups will do, they'll meet. Um, I'll give you an example in Springfield; they meet one week as a committee of the whole. They don't vote on anything, but they discuss things, and that's the time you can get in there and make comments on what they're talking about. Now, that is no substitute. For getting to know the uh, traffic engineers and all these folks, but if you're, I will tell you this: if you get out to these meetings and you're seen, especially in smaller cities, they get to know you, and they get to know and they hear you, and they know what you they know you know what you're talking about. Then you start asking questions. Okay, who is the director of public works? Who is the chief traffic engineer that I need to talk to about getting uh, signals and in, installed or that kind of thing? Um it wasn't related to pedestrian access, but I'll just use an example. Several years ago, uh, the village of Glen Ellen that we used to live in entered into uh, a sponsorship of a uh, subsidized transportation program. And the first, they went through it for uh, six months, a year, whatever it was. And uh, the next year, they came around to budget season. And they were going to decide if they were going to reappropriate money for it. And the uh, person that was overseeing it got up there and did the presentation. And the village president looked right out the audience, looked at Karen and I, and he said, I want to know how the Campbells have been helped by this and what they think of it. And that's the kind of thing. If yeah. you can get known by people and seen at meetings and seen at you know, meeting with people, uh, that's the kind of thing you need to do. We often forget about local government, but we really shouldn't. And that's where that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And uh, You you know, just just get to know folks and uh, get out there and and be seen and start advocating
1: and talk to other people about those robots band together and figure out what are the concerns, you know, and uh, it it might come up. So I guess it's time for another. Yeah, we have a Becky just reminded me we we do. We have a robot that takes food from the kitchen to the servers. And then the server brings it to the table uh, for those of us who are um, here at the convention in person. And in case you know, three out of four of us are here in person on this panel. Well, yeah, three three of four invited. I'm here too. Becky's here. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's a very inaccessible restaurant. You, They don't have people who come to your table and if if sure. you don't go to the bar and order your food, there are these inaccessible touch screens on the table, and it's all very robotic. So, who would like to ask our next question?
2: Um, I I want to ask about a mixed use recreational trail that we're planning. That's going to be twenty eight miles, and it's connect going to connect everything around the county. Currently, we have a recreation trail all along the coast. I live in Monterey, California. The problem is. It's bicycles, pedestrians, rent bikes, hover scooters, everybody. And, um, there's only, and right now it's like miles and miles of coastline. And the only part I can go on is a short stretch between Pacific Grove and, and Canary Row, because there's a section that's all decomposed granite separate from the narrow bike, uh, paved part. Now, the thing they're planning is going to be, and it's all level. I can walk on that bike part because it's all the sand and not realize it right away. So it's really dangerous, but what they're going to do is is pl- they're planning this big, huge thing that I'm already talking to them and putting in public comments about, but I don't know what to ask for. They keep assuring me it will be fine. It's going to be eight feet wide and everybody can be freely free and friendly. And I know my dog walks on the left (laughs) and she's not going to stay, you know, on the right side of the trail. What, what can I do so that I can walk on this trail?
1: I would hop in real quick and say, did you listen to our last presentation? Were you? I was. Yeah. Okay. So did you hear uh, one, one solution? And then other people can, did you hear BZ talk about the new, um, um, a trapezoidal
2: Yes, yes, marking. yes, yes, So that's yeah. one thing, you know. But, but that, you they know. already are telling me they don't want to do anything like that. Well, they can tell you
1: that, but that doesn't mean you can't talk them into doing it. They're yeah. just saying that. You know, remember what Larry said about the <laughs> you know, they say all kinds of things. We don't have money. Oh, the, we don't have to put in those signals. She looks yeah.
4: Sarah. Just a comment Go. about, you know, Sarah <laughs> Presley from the Access Board is, and I don't know if there's much you can do about it because I think with a shared use path, it's, exactly, it's just something where anybody can use any part of it. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, if you're talking about a bike lane, that's not a shared use path anymore. That's a bike lane. It's specifically yeah. for bikes. So, yeah. that, I mean, it is a problem to have these shared use paths. That's exactly what they are. They're shared use, but When you're a pedestrian, you kind of get short shrift on a shared use. But even in shared
2: use, can't you have? They're saying no, it's shared use and everything's going to be open. And they say people will be courteous about my guide dog. I'm already. And these people go by on these bike paths. And I love bikers, you know, (laughs) but these people go by a hundred miles an hour. They don't know it's a guide dog from the back when they're just racing up, you know. And um, so anyway, I don't know what to advocate for because, but I will look into the trapezoid stuff. Is it could,
4: could I?
3: Um, Janet, let, let me ask you, a qu- let me suggest something to you. Um, it's, it's very likely, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. It's very likely that a lot of the bicycle groups are really pushing for this. It sounds like that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. What you might want to do is get Google and identify the bike organizations in your area and talk to them and say, you know, hey, I I want you to have your access too, but we've got to have our access too. How can we work together? And you know, this is something maybe your ACB group can do or. Maybe working with NFB or whatever you might want to do is say, hey, how can we work together so that we have <laughs> access, meaningful access for everyone, but safe access as well?
5: I will talk real fast, but uh, to piggyback on that, the um, organization that I used to be on the board of that uh, was mentioned, uh, Local Motion, used to be called PedNet. It is, uh, our uh, biking and walking and rolling organization in mid-Missouri. And um, I got on their board to try to have an influence and be that voice uh, with all these other bikers and folks there and was able to, uh, to encourage them to, uh, to make smarter decisions for everybody. And uh, there's uh, some other blind people serving on it these days. So um, that's an option is to try to get on nonprofit
6: boards like that.
1: That's a great reminder of the importance of that kind of collaboration.
6: Yeah, you need to, I, I hope all of you really have heard what Sarah said because she's absolutely spot on. Ray is completely spot on and Sora, you completely spot on. And I really encourage you to do exactly I, the triangle trifecta that these guys just stated to you is absolutely paramount to make any change. And acceptance.
4: I I would just also say, it, I would love to know. I wish Beezy was still here yeah. because she's well, so knowledgeable about things that have happened um, around the country, and it it just might be that she's aware of some projects yeah. where things well, have worked out. So I would be. It would be fabulous. Yeah, we to we just, can
1: put you. You know, we can reach out to her with these questions, it's just a, You know, this hour is advocacy stories and hers was information about. So, you know, um, we can, you know, that we can combine these just as we collaborate on all the others. You have to. So, but yeah. So any more questions, Malcolm? Um,
8: Actually there, I've heard the word tossed around audible pedestrian signals, accessible pedestrian signals, talking pedestrian signals, I would like to know if there's a difference between any of those and it, what they are. And if there's not, can we not standardize it so that it's just one type of signal so we can all, oh, I'm very confused on it. Oh, Thank you.
4: No, this is, Sa- th- I was just going to say, this is Sarah Presley from the access board. Okay. And just okay. technically it's an accessible pedestrian signal and an accessible pedestrian signal must have both an audible and a vibrotactile component.
0: I do have a question, Madam Chair, about that to follow up on on the t- the subject. In Literally. my community, we started advocating for accessible signals a little earlier than a lot of the regulations came out, and we have quite a plethora of conflict uh, of different differing signals at different intersections. Uh, we got the birdies and and the tweeties. Uh, We have uh, some with uh, various types of talking signals. We've got speakers on the ped heads. We've got speakers on the poles. Uh, There's very little consistency because the old signals are not replaced with new signals. Uh, They are, uh, you know, once they're in, they're in. And they're grandfathered in from a standpoint of compliance. It's been my view with our community that we're better off to continue to advocate for uh, additional signals as required right now than to ever remove a signal simply to upgrade it when there are so many intersections that need them. But I'd be interested in the panel's comments on that.
1: Well, a couple of us have mentioned that we have um, agreements with our cities, and this is a way a lot of communities are going that when you put in a new signal you put in a modern you know standardized appropriate signal and when you upgrade you have to when you upgrade an old signal and they're upgrading the visual the regular part they need to also um put in an accessible pedestrian signal i
0: I understand that sheila that wasn't my question exactly uh let's suppose that we have a certain amount of signals that can be installed or upgraded in a given year, and that's a reality. Uh, we have intersections that are waiting where we know we need those signals, and we've got an intersection in a neighborhood where we've got cuckoos and tweety birds on it. Uh, the question would be: Should the priority be to always have the signals all in uniform compliance with the current? Standards, or should the uh, priority be if those are not being upgraded for other reasons to leave those signals there because they do still function and get uh, some type of signal uh, with the the current ones being installed on as many yeah, intersections. I mean, as I'm going to
1: let Ray, but I'm just yeah. If they're not making a change, yes, they're not. They're not broken. You don't have the money. I wouldn't take it out. Yes. Something's better. That's my personal opinion. And I would advocate strongly for that. Okay. All right. By the way, there's only
6: two manufacturers of these signals. There's Polaris and Campbell. Um, And so go to their websites and you can learn the differences. And what I would suggest in jurisdictions, go with one or the other. But when you start mixing them um, in modern technology, you're not going to get the same results. So you really got to settle in on what meets your community needs.
1: Clara seems to be the more popular, the more chosen. Right.
6: right.
7: All right. Uh, on Zoom, we have Colleen. I just got in, in the, on the last half, but I just want to say that I totally agree on how you need to advocate for yourself. I live in Minnesota and Two years ago, they built roundabouts all, all up and down the streets that I cross. And I talked, like you said, with the engineer guys and said, you know, are you going to put audible singles in here and stuff? And they did. And it's just it's amazing when I tell people I cross the roundabouts, I have a guide dog. And I met with all the engineers when they were done, like you were saying, and went up and, you know, they wanted to see me cross them and stuff. And so it's it's amazing how they can do that. And then there were two roundabouts that they actually had to go back and fix because when they first did them, they didn't put audible lights in there. And I asked them, you know, could you put them in there? And they put them in there.
1: That is great. Congratulations. We're clapping.
7: Thank you. Yeah, because I said when they first built those roundabouts, I thought, oh, my gosh, am I going to have to move? And it's like, (laughs) so, yeah.
0: We do have a lady in the
2: room. Uh, This is Colette from Washington. And I've been listening through Zoom or through whatever <laughs> media for up till now. My question is, can anybody tell us the secret of how you collaborate with NFB? Because the people at NFB in our area are so adamantly against any audible signals yeah. at all. And so how, what is the,
4: uh, what's the trick or the hook or the what's in it for them as well as us? Thanks. I just wanted to say, I mean, if somebody's lockjaw about this, it it, it may not be worth it. The thing would be if you could, I mean, we, in our situation, we were lucky because everybody, everybody, everybody could tell that this was a disaster. This was going to be silent countdowns, you know, that we're, they really were going to like put us in, in, in kind of jeopardy because we just wouldn't have the kind of information. And you know, um, these folks also lived in the city, which means they 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 were pretty aware of some of the different changes in the traffic um, situation, the traffic, you know, s- shape and environment, and all of that. So they knew that there was a need. Now we had we were very careful to, you know, we have x number of NFB, x number of eight. You know, we we were careful to be really clear we had a, a a chair and a co-chair one from each group and 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 that sort of stuff worked but i i wouldn't waste my time i don't think if it was a completely if they were just shut down if if there's a smaller issue that they you might be able to find one or two of them that were interested in it you might have a shot but i wouldn't i wouldn't give myself headaches over you know, trying to do something when there's absolutely, because I know that can be, that can be, and I, I wouldn't want to um, make myself yeah, to, crazy. Yeah,
5: uh, to piggyback on that a little bit, uh, some really good points there from Karen. Um, so in 2012, when I went to the Disabilities Commission before I served on it, and for those who don't know, that's what we call the group of people with disabilities that the city appoints, uh, the city council does, kind of like your water and light board and things like that. Um The person in charge of the commission at that time, um, don't know if any of you know the name, was Homer Page, um, NFB or longtime person, Um, very against apps, very against truncated domes or detectable warnings, anything that would make me safer or anyone else. Um, Anyway, but a lot of other folks, uh, NFB members in town. And I used to work as a community organizer, taking a break from that now, got burnt out. But I did that for many years, uh, working on different issues and went through a lot of trainings. And one thing I learned is about doing one-on-ones. And um, so meeting with different um, members of the NFB one-on-one over coffee, a beer, whatever you like, um, or just if uh, you don't want to meet in person over Zoom, uh, not everyone's going to agree. Sometimes it seems like they might all but they have different feelings. And if you can sway some of them to your side um, by making a different arguments and, uh, uh, and doing that, that can make a really big difference. And um, I was able to uh, get eventually them to influence Homer Page to be okay with it and uh, let it pass in the Disabilities Commission back in 2012.
1: And if one group doesn't agree, get other groups, get the cyclists, get everyone else. And Amen. so those... Those guys will be like, "Well, what's wrong with them?" You know. And I want to thank you, Maria, and ACB, our in-house audience, everybody on Zoom, anybody who's listening on ACB Media, and most of all, our our panelists, um, Ray Campbell, Gretchen Mounty. I'm going to say it right. <laughs> Karen Gurjee, did I say that right? And Larry Watkinson. <laughs> well, th- thanks to everyone. Everyone, enjoy the rest of your convention. And thank you for s- so much for joining us today at this panel.
6: Thank you, everyone. Keep you.
1: advocating, as thank Swatha you. says.